This year at the CRISM annual general meeting, I was asked to do a presentation on a law enforcement perspective as it pertains to drug policy and specifically a change in law enforcement perspective as it pertains to drug policy. So if you go over to our website and click on the podcast tab and click on the show notes for this episode, I've included the slide presentation of this uh, series. So it might be easy for you to go on, go on there, um, have a listen and kind of scroll through the slides if you want as you go. Obviously they won't be interactive the way they were during the actual conference, but uh, you'll at least get an idea of the visuals um, and it is a fairly visually stimulating slideshow that I created. So feel free to go over there and have a look, scroll through it, um, share it, use this, use this information wherever you want. Um, we don't want the credit for anything. We want as many people to learn and to gain experience from, from our information the same way that we do from other people's uh, lived experience and personal, uh, personal and professional experiences. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is a bonus episode of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. and not our typical law enforcement as we talk about our four pillars. Uh, Matt is a 12-year veteran of the Saskatoon Police Service. His work experience ranges from extensive undercover, undercover operations to patrolling Saskatoon's core neighbourhoods. He has a deep passion to understand the root causes of addiction and the overall impact of the drug trade. He has Node C funding, one of the Node C projects, with his Say No podcast, which are awesome. If you haven't had a look at them yet, they're on our Treason website. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Matt. Okay, hey, thanks a lot for uh, for having me. It's, it's an honor to to present here, not just at, at one escape one. I don't think this conference could be hosted at a better place in and around Saskatoon. It definitely promotes uh, healing and, and idea sharing, which is what we're here to do. Um, so, as you just heard, yes, I am a police officer, uh, police officer here in Saskatoon, um, and it's a grind. So I really appreciated Don's song there, because as, as someone in my industry who's trying to push the narrative and make some, make some real positive change in the way we do things, it definitely feels like you're pushing a boulder uphill a, a lot of days, and, and hearing that song really resonated with me and uh, gave me a little bit more fuel in my fire when I was feeling a little bit down. So on that note, the, the title of my presentation here is, It is Time to Change the Way That We Do Business. If anybody asks you about my presentation today, tell them that I had a cold and I was quite sick because that's how I got here. <laughs> so on July 22nd, 2004, police received a call to 102 MN South here in Saskatoon. The call was to assist social services in apprehending two siblings, Letitia, age 8, and Nakota, age 10. There is evidence of significant IV drug use in the home. Both the police and social services had received calls that Nakota had been doing tricks under, the, under her mom's direction. The attending officers noted that Letitia and Nakota seemed neglected and underdeveloped for their age. Social services immediately apprehended and placed them into care. The names have been changed, the details are true. Nakota is now 24 years old. She's had over 213 documented incidents 
through the Saskatoon Police Service. And I can tell you that she's had probably double or triple that in non-contacted incidents with the police. I just had one with her the other day, that's why she's in here. It's not because this story stands out, it's because I just dealt with her the other day. Her involvement with the police, other than that initial call for service to help with social services, began at age 11 when she sold some prescription opiates. So when an 11-year-old steals prescription opiates, you know that she's on the path to an addiction if she hasn't had one already. She's had 12 reports of being abused by family members. She's been a victim of sexual assault that she's reported to the police, or has been reported to the police four times, I guarantee you there's more than that. She's a victim of an aggravated assault. In fact, when I talked to her most recently here, there's no, no investigation going on, but she's missing a finger. She's been completely scarred up. I was looking for her for days because I'd heard on the streets through informants of mine that she's, she's missing and they heard that a gang got her. Luckily, I found her this last week and uh, she is alive, but she's missing a finger and completely scarred up. There's no police investigation. She's been the victim of an assault causing bodily harm. That's not counting the one that I just told you about. And she's been reported missing 42 times. Now, Nakoda is not just a victim. She's also an offender. She's been charged with robbery. She's been charged with assaulting other people with a weapon. So she's assaulted people like herself. She's been charged with possession of stolen property three times. She's been charged with possession of methamphetamine. She's been charged with theft. In total, she hasn't actually served that much time as far as the criminal justice system is typically concerned. But she's had 54 months of probation, eight months of incarceration over the entire course of her life. I don't just deal with the Nakotas of the world. This is Justin, he's 29 years old. He's had 146 documented contacts with the Saskatoon Police Service. Justin is the stereotypical drug trafficker. He's a member of a gang, but he's only a member of a gang because he went to jail and he needed to join up, otherwise he was gonna get his ass kicked every single day. So that's, that's where his gang involvement came from. He's been unlawfully at large multiple times, and been in several high-speed pursuits with him. He's had 21 firearms-related offenses. He's been charged with possessing stolen property, 14 break-and-enters, been charged five times with possession of methamphetamine, He's been charged with drug trafficking six times, and he's had 32 breaches of his court order. This is a stereotypical drug trafficker that the police deal with. Now, I don't know much about Justin's childhood history. What I do know is that his offending started in adulthood. And what I also know is that he lost his daughter and girlfriend in a horrific car accident. Just some food for thought. So based on my experience and research uh, and the time that I've been on the street, it's obvious that the vast amount of the people that I interact with on a daily basis have roots in trauma. In fact, I read one time about a uh, research that had been done somewhere and that over three out of, almost four out of every five highly intravenous drug traffickers reported that they had been sexually abused at some point as a child. Thinking that statistic might be slightly exaggerated, I took a piece of scrap paper, kept it in the visor of my patrol car when I was working in our court neighborhood, 
And every day I would interact with an IV drug user at some point. Either they were a victim, they were a witness, they just happened to live in the community of police or on the odd occasion they were getting arrested. I'd build some rapport and I would ask them, would you mind telling me how you got into this life? And the amount of times in that month that I heard the word molested shocks me even today. Because the word molested is something that's not even been used since I've been a police officer. We use a lot of softer terms like sexual abuse, sexual assault, that sort of thing. The word molested is very harsh, but they used it for that reason because it was very harsh. And during that month, my little case study that I know the research professionals in this room would say, well, that's not really peer-reviewed, and how, much, how many conclusions can we really draw from it? But in my life, it was quite significant because there was only two people that told me that they weren't molested in an entire month. So we know trauma leads to addiction. The big issue with trauma leading to addiction isn't the fact that trauma leads to addiction. It's the fact that it is illegal to be addicted to anything that is illicit. So if there's no legal supply to a substance, then you are a criminal because you have to get it. And in order to get it, you have to commit a crime. And not only do you have to commit crimes in order to obtain the substance that you're using, in order to participate in the brutal environment that this, that this uh, product is being sold under, you have to commit crimes in order to obtain it in the first place. And even just, just to participate, just in order for them to deal with you, to know that, they can, that you can be trusted and that you can obtain your supplies, you too are encouraged to commit crimes. And of course, the crimes come to police. And the more calls for service that are generated, the more police response you get. So the more one individual, more, the more people call the police about it, one single individual, the more police involvements they're going to have. The more police, the more calls for service that an entire community has or a neighborhood has, the more police you're going to see in that neighborhood. That's just policing 101. You phone us, you want us to show up, and we do. So what do we know about crime and addiction? Well, I'm no brainiac, but my former, former police chief here in Saskatoon is. He said, we were seeing big declines until about two years ago when methamphetamine hit. That's a lot of our armed robberies, theft of vehicles, theft from vehicles, household break and enters, and break and enters into businesses. My current police chief says, we do know from our experience that those issues around drugs and addictions fueled offending is what's our challenge here today. Winnipeg Police Service Chief Danny Smith says one-third of all homicides in 2017 were the direct result of illicit drugs playing an integral role in the crime. More break-ins, home invasions, and robberies have occurred because of that as well. In Calgary, the police chief says, I believe that most of our acquisitive crime in Calgary is fueled by the current environment we see around addictions and drugs. These are the leaders of our police departments. So let's talk about what number, what are, what are we actually referring here when we're talking about crime rates? Well, in 2017, this is Saskatoon-based stats, in 2017, we responded to 110,809 calls for service. Keep in mind that Saskatoon likes to trade with Regina, and every once in a while, Prince Albert is the highest crime rate in the country that we're really proud of. Number one spot for something. 3,457 violent crimes. 16,937 property crimes, 
1,156 drug offenses, 788 weapons-related offenses, 10,935 people were arrested last year. This is in a population of under 300,000. And policing is expensive. It costs the city of Saskatoon 95.8 million or 23 cents of every dollar you spend on your property tax. Now, who here has ever dealt with the police? Just a show of hands. Whether it was a speeding ticket, you made a phone call because you're complaining about something, you've had some sort of interaction somewhere with the police. Okay. Most of us, maybe 75% of the room. Okay, who here was it just traffic, a traffic related incident, and that's it? Okay, just a few of you. Okay. I don't want to get too personal, so I'm not going to start asking each one of you why you called the police. <laughs> but let's just say for an instance, a drug house moved next door to you. Are you going to call the police? Probably. You should. Jason McCurdy wouldn't, because he'd be doing outreach work out of there. <laughs> but everybody else, you would start calling the police. And you should call the police, because it's dangerous to live right next door to, to a drug house. Why? Well, Lori Santos would have been able to tell you, her family sure can here in Saskatoon, when in 20, 2012, gang members targeted the wrong house, and while she was making lunch for her, her kids and her husband before work, they opened fire on her house and killed her here in Saskatoon. I investigated a shooting last year in the 900 block of Avenue G North here in Saskatoon, where the wrong house was shot up. Luckily, nobody got hit with those bullets. But not to worry, the following day, the gang hit the right house in the 1400 block of Avenue G North. So they got the wrong address again. People are choosing not really the most highly educated people and they don't use Google Maps when they're doing their drive-bys here. So, when it comes to, has anyone here ever, ever called the police about a drug trafficker? Probably not. Maybe some of you, okay. Um, but it probably would have been a situation like those drug houses. I guarantee you no one has ever called the police in this room regarding our shipping containers, our big ships that bring in our, our cargo containers that are sitting off the coast of British Columbia, and the massive boxes that have been welded underneath those ships that are holding hundreds of kilograms of cocaine right today. And as those ships are sitting out at the ports on Vancouver's west, on the west coast, before those ships have even technically entered those, the country, there are people walking with cement shoes and scuba gear, unwelding those boxes, emptying that cocaine, and before that ship is even technically in Canada, all of the drugs have been offloaded and are now in our country and into our streets. Nobody's ever called us about those issues, but you would definitely call us about a drug house next door. And this is why organized crime is out of control. Coke production's at an all-time high. Opiate production's at an all-time high. The global traffic mar trafficking market is worth half a trillion dollars. And that's a very rough estimate. So let's think about that for a minute. Arguably, the largest market in the world, some say it's only second to oil, I think, reality is it's probably exceeded oil, is illicit. The biggest economy in the world is illicit. It takes from us, 
and gives nothing in return. Not only does it give nothing in return, imagine all the money right now that you're spending to fill up your gas tank every month when you're driving to work and driving your kids and your families around. Pretend when you went to the gas pumps and you handed that cash over to that company, that company didn't give you gas. Instead, they went and took the gas and they sprayed it all over your neighborhood and they lit a match. And then the fire department that you're paying for has to show up and put it all out. That's what's happening and that's the illicit drug trade in a nutshell. Cocaine production continues to grow. Fentanyl is being shipped into our country by the ton. Tons of it are being shipped here through the mail, going virtually unpoliced. And people are dying. In one Mexican province last year, 2,894 people were murdered. In one Mexican province. There's being mass migration out of Colombia. We have a podcast episode coming up with a good friend of mine named George. And he's a Colombian refugee here in Canada. And his family got a knock on the door one day when they were at their family farm in Colombia. And it was a cartel member. And the cartel member told them, we would like you to start growing coca plants. There, his father-in-law had had enough of dealing with the cartels over the years and was an old stubborn man. He sounded like an awesome individual. And he basically told him, go fuck yourself. I'm sick of this. This is my country. I'm not growing coke. He was murdered right then and there. They showed up the next day. They wiped out his other two sons. So George picked up his family. His wife was, was, the, uh, was the next in heir to earn the his wife and sister to earn the family farm, so they just got out of town. And they spent two years hiding out in Columbia before they could come to, come to Canada. And luckily, George has some, has some skills, and he was able to, uh, to get over on a workers program and bring his family here. So this is the kind of stuff that's happening worldwide because of the drug issues that, that are in our, in our country. But it's not just affecting, organized crime isn't just affecting countries overseas. It's affecting our country, but in a way that many of you don't think about, probably. Who here has bought a house ever? Anyone bought a house lately? They're bloody expensive. Super expensive. Especially if you live in Vancouver. And why is that? Well, it's because it's super easy to bring drugs into a country. It's very hard to get cash out. And the easiest way for you to launder your money or deal, or deal with your money is through real estate. Because all you need is a realtor and a lawyer who's willing to take a large sum of cash. And we know that all lawyers are willing to do that. So this is where, this is where housing crisis has come into effect. This is why we have housing crisis and we say, well, rent keeps going up. It's because the landlords are having to buy houses that are way overvalued because in Canada alone, we have an estimated $15 billion of cold hard cash being thrown straight into our legitimate economy. So what happens? Inflation goes up at a higher rate. So I'm not sure if you guys knew this, but Vancouver had all these multi-million dollar houses sitting there empty. And so the city council thought, well, we should do something about this because this makes no sense. I don't know why they didn't like fentanyl crisis, all, all these houses sitting empty. 
There's clearly a, there's clear a relationship here. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars in $20 bills being generated on the streets every single day, and that needs to go somewhere. So they start buying houses. They start buying these million-dollar properties, and no one lives there because they don't care. The, the drug traffickers who own these, they live in Asia, they live in, in Colombia, they live all over the world. And so these houses sit empty. And so the city said, well, we're going to start taxing empty houses, so at least we can generate some revenue from this. So they started taxing up to $2,500 a month on these empty houses. Well, we're gonna, they have more money than they know what to do with, so they just threw it out. Yeah, we'll pay this tax, we don't give a shit. So what happens? The first year, the city makes $30 million, and now they're confused, wondering what should we do with all this money? <laughs> so these are real things that are happening. So it brings me back to the, to the road that we're currently on. I ask every guest at the end of my podcast, do you think that crime is a criminal justice issue, a healthcare issue, or something else in between? And I've interviewed so far, I think we've had 12 to 13 episodes released, everything from police officers to uh, frontline workers, researchers, people with lived experience. Not a single one has ever called it a criminal justice issue. And yet that's how we're treating it. So what do we do? Well, trauma and addiction, we need to take the crime out of addiction. And we need to replace it with services and support. Now, what kind of services am I, am I talking about? It starts with a legal supply. It starts with a legal supply, not ending with a legal supply. The reason it needs to start with a legal supply is because decriminalization without a legal supply only removes the harm of that one individual entering the justice system for minor offenses. That's it. It doesn't remove the harm from the illicit market. It doesn't shrink organized crime. It doesn't provide the police with resources that can be reallocated back to the community. It doesn't shrink the size of police services. It doesn't do any of that. We also need access to drug replacement therapies. We also need access to affordable housing. And when it comes to support, it's all about meeting the person where they're at. And to meet someone where they're at, it means continue, allow them to continue using if they need to use. Because quite frankly, only a complete asshole would say that Nakoda should not use drugs. Let me repeat that. Only an asshole would tell Nakoda who's had her finger chopped off by organized crime, is completely scarred, was pushed into the into the sex trade at age 10, that she should not be using drugs. But yet, that's what many of us are doing. We need to have detox and treatment facilities available. We need to have peer-led community outreach programs. And most of all, we need to be a trauma-informed society. We need to create policies that remove the chaos and crime associated to addiction. Research-based drug policies is clearly the, the way to do that, and that's what we advocate for with our Say No, which is KMW, by the way, program. So that brings us back to the police. What's our job? Well, criminal investigations, for one. And we're good at this. The police are really good at criminal investigations. Not because they hire geniuses like me, but because we're scamming the system. Drug traffickers like Justin, easiest guy to, to investigate ever. He literally throws evidence out the window while, while we are chasing him in high-speed chases. 
Super easy. It's great. We walk in with massive boxes of, of evidence that we just collected from just following around for a day. Super easy. Okay, when it comes to complex criminal organization investigations like Project for Steady, which I got to do here in, over the last few years, but anyone that knows that it was a it was a big organized crime project on uh, on some bikers. It cost between thirty and fifty million dollars, and we didn't get the results we wanted. Those investigations cost a lot of money and they're super complex and we don't get to do them far often enough because all of our resources and focus is, is pushed down to the street level around the chaos that's associated with addiction. Public safety and crime prevention. Sir Robert Peel in 1857 was the grandfather of modern day policing and he told us that public safety and crime prevention is a police issue. Well, I'm here to tell you it's not a police issue. And the reason it's not a police issue is because the police do not have the resources to make the single most biggest impact in both public safety and crime prevention. Health and social services do, however. Now, when I talk about public safety, I also want to mention that public safety also includes people who use drugs, and it also includes people who have substance use disorders and are struggling with an addiction. They're, they need to be included in that public safety, and currently they're not. So where do we go from here? It's time to get off the road that we're on. And in the wise words of my former police chief, getting tough on crime won't fix the challenges before us. We need to get tough on poverty, homelessness, racism, and disadvantage. Until root causes of violence are probably addressed, like poverty, poor housing, disadvantage, etc., Indigenous people will continue to be vulnerable and disproportionately represented in Canada's justice system. Overall, we cannot lose focus on that. And in Calgary Police Service, the real call for us, rather than just to say decriminalization, is we need better tools. We need better community supports to deal with these problems. And then we can likely have a more mature discussion on what should be a crime and what should not be a crime. Crime prevention and public safety are community issues. They require a community response. It's not just the role of the police. Those days are done. We cannot do it. Any questions, shameless plug for our podcast. <laughs> While it seems nobody's getting any questions, we've got some time. Everybody take out your phone, hit the podcast button <laughs> on your phone, type in say no, K-N-O-W, like this, Drug Education Project, and hit subscribe. Okay, we have a lot of listeners, thousands of listeners to our podcast, but we only have hundreds of subscribers, and subscribing is what matters to boost you up in the podcast world. So please subscribe and tell everybody questions about that. It's not so much a question um, as uh, relating. I, there isn't a prison I haven't been in in Alberta. And I go in there and I work with the guys uh, on cultural programs. And gangs, they run the federal prison system. And it wasn't the, I'm usually in there for a week. 
And it's not the first day, it's not the second day. It's usually the third day when they take off all their colors when they come into that workshop. I cannot enough impress the importance of cultural approaches when dealing with the indigenous community. One of the things that they said, well, a couple of things that they said, was that when they were talking about government was, yes, my mother may have been a prostitute, yes, she may have been an alcoholic, yes, she may have been a drug addict, but where were you when she needed education, training, support, and a job? And they said, reiterating like a little bit of what you said, we're here for one reason, poverty. The other thing that they related to me is that you've got all of these youth programs that started at 12, 13, you know, and upwards. He said, you're already too late for us. He said, drug pushers, traffickers, you're at us in the playground. They're recruiting us at five years old and we're selling drugs by the time we're seven. The same thing with the domestic uh, human trafficking in Canada. There are two rings that work out of Edmonton. First one in triangles. First one is um, Edmonton, Vancouver, and Calgary, back to Edmonton, and then from Edmonton to Regina to Saskatoon, back to Edmonton. The average age of a trafficked Indigenous child is between 7 and 12 years old. So there's a lot of things that when we talk about addictions, when we talk about um, kids involved in those addictions or involved in those lifestyles that are very risky for them, that we haven't begun to touch, how do we solve those problems? Like you said, it's the, the fool who would tell them, don't do drugs, or don't, you know. I mean, obviously, drugs are working for them. I, I said asshole, not Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't quote you. <laughs> but that, that's what they keep relaying to us as well. I mean, in Edmonton, we have this huge problem on 118th Avenue, they call it 118 in Edmonton. And we have a granddaughter who is involved, she's a meth addict. All of her friends are meth addicts. And she says that the youngest kid that she has seen is begging somebody, please kill me, when he was high on meth, he was 12 years old. And we're getting kids who are being raised by addicts. And they too become addicts. And there's some. Um, so we, we have to, as you said, start dealing with those issues about poverty and racism and the things that they face. And they feel powerless. They live on 118. The police continually get after them, arrest them. They, they have no power. And they're, they're told they're banned from being on 118. Yet that's where they live. So they have the, the feeling of complete powerlessness is overwhelming. They're just ripe for the, the, the community to, to prey on them. You know, and a lot of them are homeless. There's a lot of group homes around there. A lot of them are homeless. And they, um, they guard each other. Now, helps them stay awake. Helps them to stay awake at night. But they're not eligible to go into youth shelters because they're using. There's nothing that addresses them where they are. Like you said, gotta go where they are. And yet this group of kids, they're keeping each other safe. 
And one of the ways you're doing that is using them. How do we respond to that? How do we answer that? You know, so I really want to thank you for the comments that, that you made. I think you know, what you said, you're just touching on how our eyes need to be opened when we're dealing with drugs on the street and how they get here. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for your comments. How can I 
I guess, show him or persuade him that this is the path and the journey you want to get. Because so a lot of what ends up happening, and I found, and please don't be from take offense to this, but what I found at the stimulus conference was that well, not only are you only preaching to to like-minded individuals, so you can get away with it a little bit more, but it was it was morality based on the other side of the argument. So it was just like no drugs. You know, over here, it's drugs should be illegal because I care about our youth. Over here, it's, no, I care more about our youth than you do. That's why drugs should be legal. Instead of just coming together and being like, what are our values that we share here? And this is what the research shows us here from there. That's why we have a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want to commend you for making your comments. I think it's very brave to say things like questioning the underpinnings of global drug prohibition while you're a uniform um, member of the police. Um, and certainly I've been fortunate to know uh, others like you and other police forces across the country that are questioning uh, why we're doing the same things we're doing to the same negative um, results. But I wonder, what is it going to take to see senior police leaders in this country adopt these views? And, Mass retirement. Yeah, like honestly, because it's great that you and your colleagues are speaking out, but the reality is that you see, it's so rare to see someone that's senior that has a, a louder voice. The, the, the average modern-day police officer from my generation who has been on the streets for at least five years, between five and ten years, these views are not foreign for them. They might not be so radical that they're ready to go and say that drugs should be legal because they don't understand the framework or they haven't taken that time, but they know that arresting people for possession is a waste of their time and they're sick of it. They know that going after these small little pockets of symptoms in the community that they're, they're responsible for is a waste of time. So our, my generation of police officers, I'm not a rent, that much of a renegade. And I'm just wondering about that. Like, is it even the police leadership as opposed to like who's going to change the criminal code? Is it police leadership that goes and changes the criminal code of Canada, or who would be working on that to really change this? Other than you know Justin Trudeau and what policies they put forward. But what would, would police leadership change that? I'm not sure. It, it wouldn't have that ability. Well, it, it's. Police officers are, are given discretion. And so the best part about discretion is that I don't have to charge everybody I deal with. So police, a police service could actually be, could decriminalize drugs tomorrow if they chose to. Everyone could. We would just stop arresting. And we'd use, and we'd use discretion and we would divert them elsewhere like we do with heavy shoplifters. So that, that ability is there. But yes, you're right in the fact that when it comes to bigger change, that's why we have these police chiefs saying like, just simply decriminalizing, decriminalizing without giving a without giving a legal supply, for example, isn't going to isn't going to eradicate the issues that are important to us, which is organized crime, community safety, you know, making sure that there's no more home invasions or drive-by shootings. Simply decriminalizing doesn't cut down on that. It it might contribute a little bit, but there's bigger things that need to be moved out of the way. And just wanted to say, you know, in terms of, uh, it's even, I'm sorry to say this, but even with your line of question, it seems to be inside war. Like, is it police or is it like the legal system or whoever? And I think, I think we can't discount, like, for instance, Glenn Wayne, you know, our former police chief, had a major effect in terms of how we looked at property in this city when he just started talking about we can't arrest our way out of this. And so we've actually seen policy shifts from the province, we've seen policy shifts from the city for sure. Uh, because uh, somebody in the leadership position took a stand 
And so um, this, who's, who's the right people to say and who's the right people to lead, I think we have to be very careful as a movement that we don't, um, we don't try to silence people before they're, they're speaking up. Because if I, were a, if I were a police officer and I heard that morning, I would probably think, well, what's the point? Why am I going to talk if it's not going to matter? Um, you know, and, and I've heard the same thing, same line of questioning around Saskatoon or Saskatchewan Health Authority staff, where it's, well, who are they and what are they doing? There's a lot of allies internally and a lot of leadership that is sympathetic or aligned with what we're doing. And for us to just start um, saying that what they're going to do doesn't matter, even if it's small, is going to have monumental shifts. So I think we just have to be careful on how we have that dialogue in the community. Yeah, and we, and we can't be solving issues in silos. Right? Like I said, this is a community problem. We all need to come together and work in collaboration to solve these issues. It's, it's not a, like I said, re reducing crime isn't a police issue. Public safety isn't a police issue. It's a community issue. We can all contribute to it and make it Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. Please head over to your social media pages and follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter handle is at SayNoOrg. Also, check out our website, www.saynoknow.org. And most importantly of all, please hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast. And tell all your friends and family, because we need all the support we can get. We're in this together. We're trying to make some positive changes in our community. And as far as we know, education, sharing stories is definitely the best way to do that. So catch you next time.